0: me on another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Monta, where we discuss everything and anything cannabis, along with what's going on in the world around you, hoping to see if we can make you better informed to make some really good decisions, especially in your cannabis journey. And today, I'm really, really happy to have a guest with us today, who's the Executive Director of the Veterans for Medical Cannabis, a nonprofit group that works directly with veterans and has been instrumental in shaping cannabis policy nationwide. He's a disabled, retired hired Air Force vet who's been a medical cannabis activist since the mid-90s, long before it became vogue and people jumped aboard the Green Rush. This man's been out there in the streets fighting as hard as he can to give the rights to other vets and people like himself who need cannabis as a medication to help them have those private conversations with their doctors that they should be having. He's worked for uh, many initiatives. One was the passage of the nation's first modern medical cannabis bill in California, which was Prop 215. You know, please welcome to us, Mike Crowitz. Mike, so much for being. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh man,
1: thanks for having me. It's really great to be here.
0: Absolutely. Why don't you back us up for a minute, my friend, and and give us an idea of how you got started? I mean, what really led you to becoming a medical cannabis activist?
1: you know, I, I grew up in the, the, the kind of the Cheech and Chong era, you know, and I, I tell people that everything I knew about marijuana before I went in the military, I learned, you know, from watching Cheech and Chong movies, but it's not that much of a joke. I mean, 1970s, marijuana was uh, ubiquitous and I left that behind me, the whole culture uh, from high school and everything and joined the military and then I uh, got injured in the military.
0: But while you were in the military, though, you say you laughed at the culture, but while in the military, even back in the 70s, they had just started testing programs back then, testing people for marijuana use, correct? No, I said I left the culture. I I
1: left it behind or left the culture. Didn't laugh at the culture. But, yeah, Yeah. uh, the the, the thing is that uh, uh, inside the United States Air Force, um, you know, you, uh, it, it's funny. Actually, when I joined the Air Force in 1980, it was like 1981. Uh, when we went into tech school, the police took us aside and we had an auditorium filled with, you know, new, uh, air, air, what were we, uh, airmen? And, uh, the, this, the police, security police came in and said, uh, if you smoke marijuana, keep it off base. Guys, gals, uh, if you bring it on base, we're gonna, we're gonna have to, so you, you know, keep it off base. And then by the time I left the military, just four years later, the message had changed and the security police would tell the new cadets coming in, uh, hey, if you use it anytime, anywhere, any place, we will catch you and you'll get in trouble. So it's funny, you know, it's kind of a, a, a turning point or a crossroads, but I, I literally had, you know, had left it behind me. It was part of my youth, uh, uh, this whole marijuana culture and, uh, the, you know, this Air Force thing was, was, you know, really a career for me. And I, I was, I was going places. I was going to learn how to fly a helicopter. I'd already made a deal, you know, with the Air Force to send me to the Army and actually cross train me. And I was going to become a, a pilot of a, of a helicopter. And, you know, I got in an accident, uh, off duty hurt, you know, riding home from dinner on the island of Guam. And it just changed the trajectory of my life in two seconds flat.
0: Crazy you now, you know, I I was stationed on Guam myself. I I entered the military in nineteen seventy four, believe it or not. I came over I did a delayed program so 73, 74, went through boot camp in the Marine Corps at Paris Island, and then in seventy six to eighty I was at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And you know, back while we were there, I'm pretty positive that, you know, the service academies was one of the places that the US military used to actually and the US government used to actually establish the urine testing and urinalysis to see if they could find traces of cannabis because they had a pretty homogeneous, you know, uh, uh constituency at the all the service academies. And then, you know, it was shortly thereafter that, like you said, you know, the military basically just came out with an edict saying that you can no longer use and this is against the law, period, boom boom, boom. And, you know, you know, you were in the mid eighties Injured while on active duty on Guam. I was stationed on Guam from uh, really 1981, late '82. Let's see, late late '80 80 to '82. I left Guam in '82, headed to uh, the Defense Language Institute where I went to study Russian. So I was there, and I mean I know. And I, as a matter of fact, I literally got rid of my motorcycle. I have been a a motorcyclist and a motorcycle enthusiast. uh, throughout my my youth and even while at the academy I I had a a motorcycle legally on the side and I literally took my motorcycle to Guam but I remember the fact that Guam roads are made using coral Coral. as the gravel and what a lot of people don't know about coral is that when coral is wet it sweats and so you would uh, be driving down the road And literally, brakes were inoperable. And I remember the first two days I rode my bike on Guam, I pulled over at the McDonald's, you know, on the Ganya Highway. I pulled over there and literally I went inside, sat down because I was so infuriated with the fact that I couldn't stop. And a guy sitting next to me bought my motorcycle off of me right there on the spot. I sold it to a Guamanian for cash. As a matter of fact, I helped push it up in the back of his truck and had to literally walk back to the base. Uh i found the ride, but I got back there and uh that ended my motorcycle career. So but you uh you, you bit the big one, huh?
1: I it's I am absolutely amazed at how close we crossed paths. That's really something. Mm-hmm. Uh Guam Guam is a pretty small little spot in this in the South Pacific there.
0: And not too many people, not too many people can say that they were ever stationed there, my friend. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time there. Well, I was I was stationed there at the Naval Security Group activity that was there on Guam because I was a, uh, a cryptologist. And I deployed out of Guam literally to the Indian Ocean for almost uh, two-thirds of my entire uh, deployment to Guam. So
1: I was uh, a electronic warfare systems technician. I was on Anderson Air Force Base, and we worked gotcha. on the B-52D B- models. And, you know, I remember that this was the height of the Cold War, and uh, our D-model B-52s, as rickety as they were, uh, were part of our uh, strategic defense from that, remember what it was called, the uh, mutually ex- a- a- assured destruction, the MAD.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and, you and know, you, you was- probably held the same clearance. I mean, I had a top-secret SI clearance. And, you know, you, you look at, at the way we are weirdly cozying up to Russia these days. It kind of throws me a little bit in the fact that, you know, had <laughs> you or I done anything remotely near what's being done today with conversations with Russians and in hotel rooms and in uh, <laughs> board rooms, you know, yeah. we would have gone to jail with the blink of an eye, just exposing the fact that we had met with somebody, you know, not what the content of the meeting was, just the fact that we even had that meeting. So, Yeah. <laughs> Man, right in the height of harder Cold War, but okay. Got, so you you had your accident, okay? Yeah, and
1: then Joe, what happened was I I uh, you know got injured, and then I got sent to Hawaii to get patched up, and then they sent me to a military my next military base uh, off at Air Force Base. But uh, by the time my end of my service came up, they had actually put me through a medical board, so I got out of the service with a medical discharge instead of uh, you know transferring over to the army like my plan was. And it it worked out okay. I mean, in my life, but you know, I had to make sort of uh, uh, you know my my lemons into lemonade kind of thing. But the thing is that I I went through a a huge number. I I had 13 surgeries and all, and a dozen procedures and different kinds of treatments and therapies at the VA before really before medical marijuana was even born, before 1996. And then around 1996, I got the use of medical cannabis for the very first time officially. Actually to the Dutch government, not even the US government. And that was, you know, a big part of my early activism. And what got me started really, frankly, was two things. One was what got me started was I looked at the history and I found in these old Park Davis books that they used to teach the, the, you know, the actual doctors back a hundred years ago would learn about cannabis and they'd learn about a patient like me. It actually spoke specifically about somebody who had Stomach injuries, lost a little bit of my spleen and this and that, and and have orthopedic injuries with a lot of pain. They actually talked about a patient like that because somebody like me, I can't really tolerate the opiate pain medications that well. And I'll tell you, if it can reduce opiate pain medication, I think we've learned that's a good thing anyway, right? Across the board. Right. So, but uh, what happened to me was after a dozen different therapies at the VA, I find cannabis works for me. And I wanted other vets to not have to go through that level of of uh, trial and error and, and that level of, uh, of of discomfort before actually finding it that's kind of been a driving force and also I saw a disparity there I, you know because I did a little traveling I had access to cannabis in, in the Netherlands in Europe but other veterans weren't having that access so even today and especially today we have you know 30 states plus that have good access programs and then we have you know 20 states you know that don't have good access programs. It, really sucks, uh, the the disparities between what one veteran has access to and another. So that's kind of what drives me.
0: Okay, and then you you literally made this, you know, your life's work. So you started Veterans for Medical Cannabis. When did that actually start? You took over an existing organization, correct? Yeah, what happened was
1: I came in in 1998. Uh, It was basically, I remember very specifically the day because It was a a World Drug Summit that I came and spoke at, and I remember talking about the Netherlands and talking about how my own country wasn't respecting my medical needs. I had to go to a foreign country, and they respected my medical needs. And uh, it was later, many years later, I started working inside the VA on this uh, thing called a pain contract. (coughs) Excuse me. And the pain contract, I thought, was a big problem right after Proposition 215 in 1996, working with uh, Dr. McCorea, in california we learned that a lot of patients were using cannabis as an adjunct medication in other words they were using cannabis together with other pills effectively the pills that they were using from the doctor but the second thing was maybe even more important a huge number of those patients were saying that they were using less pills so i looked at that and i thought you know gosh looking at my own situation with pain medication looking at the increase in the you know how the government is ratcheting up the drug war around drugs I thought this is going to be like a train wreck. These patients that are using these pills are going to want to use marijuana to use less pills, but the doctor is going to give them my way or the highway. You know, here's a document you have to sign saying you're either going to use my pills or the cannabis. You can't use them both. I thought that was an unacceptable outcome. And I dedicated, you know, that's what I dedicated my life to was working inside the VA on that. I met up with a guy named Marty Chilka. Martin Chilcutt was in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he got a grant from the Marijuana Policy Project to go around and get veteran service organizations to sign on to resolutions on medical cannabis. But unfortunately, around that time, around 2007, 2006, there wasn't any way to to talk to these service organizations or the VA because marijuana is illegal under federal law. And there was no dialogue to be had. But my work inside the VA with Marty's work outside the VA combined around 2008, and by 2010, we had actually produced the VA marijuana policy. That's, that was our work. And with the VA marijuana policy, all of a sudden now we have a dialogue. And it's you know as well as I do how, how much that's changed. Since 2010, it's born a whole, you know, kind of uh, a stakeholder group within the cannabis movement of veterans. And dozens or more, you know, a couple of dozens of veteran service organizations that are just around cannabis whether delivering cannabis directly or so you know working in the industry even in the security uh, around the uh, gosh, uh, just everything that you could imagine, you know, even uh, Airbnb, you know, veterans, cannabis-owned. You know, there's so many different industries around this cannabis. It's fantastic.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that because now you work with the VA. Now, the VA has established a policy, I guess, but you can't find it in writing, but I guess their policy is that any state that allows for a medical marijuana program, if a veteran has a marijuana card in those states, they will not have their VA benefits withheld. Is that how it works?
1: Well, you should never have your VA benefits withheld anyway, but yeah. (laughs) But yeah, the way it works, we we worked with the Undersecretary of Health at that time, back in 2008, and we, we got the Undersecretary of Health of the VA to admit that ethically uh, you're not supposed to have your pain treatment taken away, or any other, you know the cannabis should be treated like any other medication. As long as you're using it under doctor's orders in a state program, uh, certainly you, you should it should be treated like any other medication inside the system. And the VA policy revolves around that. So what they did was they created it's like a, a three part policy. Most of it is a clarification. The per- first part of clarification is that cannabis remains a Schedule One drug. And that you still could be arrested in federal property for possession. So even at the VA hospital, you could still get arrested for possession of marijuana. That was part number one. Part number two was that the DEA had threatened the VA and told them that if they participated in any way, even the signing of forms to help the veteran participate in a state program, they would be liable to arrest. So in response to that, the VA said, we are not going to even fill out the forms or or sign the recommendations for the veteran to participate in the state program. You're on your own. We will answer questions. We will speak openly about it. In fact, we encourage our doctors to speak openly about it, but they are not allowed to recommend it, which, you know, that's interesting because that's a free speech thing that we established out in the West Coast. But anyway, the third part is the part that you've focused in on, and that is that cannabis should be, when it's legal under state law and your veteran is following the state law, should be treated like any other medication by the VA, and uh, there should be no punitive action whatsoever. E- even those uh, uh, services that may seem contradictory, like you know, drug abuse uh, treatment or uh, pain treatment, uh, you know, there, there should be no arbitrary or, or punitive action taken. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, th- these things happen throughout the system. But when we're able to talk to the VA leadership and show them that a veteran has tried their best to deal with an issue at a local level, their, you know, patient advocate, their director, whatever has failed to correct the problem. The VA actually has stepped in and corrected problems where we brought it to their attention that a veteran affair doctor was actually acting punitively based on a drug test. So, yeah, we've actually been able to enforce this policy, but it, it only involves, you know, really the veteran using cannabis uh, under a state program doing so, uh, you know, following all the rules and, uh, you know, being treated punitively at the VA hospital as a result. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, your organization has been been recently doing some work with the World Health Organization,
1: correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's where I am right now. I'm actually still in Vienna, Austria, uh, where we had a meeting yesterday. It was a landmark meeting where the World Health Organization came over and educated the U.N. about cannabis. It's a pretty uh, incredible event. And it's the second event like this this year. The first one was in June, and then this one uh, you you know, here uh, in September. And then we're going to have a vote this coming March, March 2020, inside the United Nations on a whole portfolio of recommendations that the World Health Organization has put together on reform of cannabis in the treaty. Uh, a, a yes on these recommendations could have some profound impact, even in the United States, on federal law.
0: Right, right, right. Well, you make sure, make sure you reach out to us and give us all the information, because I, you know, I just spoke at the UN last week at a uh, 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 organization that was talking about lowering the cost of medical care uh, and and uh, the law, the cost of. Um, overall cause for patients who suffer from chronic illness. That was a big discussion that we were having a week ago at the UN, and then uh, I could probably help you with that without a doubt. So if you just reach out to us and uh, make sure that all of our listeners are well informed about what's going on at the World Health Organization level. Now, you know, you you for yourself, though, okay, just just talk for a second about how cannabis has helped you
1: well gosh I, I for one thing, I wouldn't be able to you know be chunking around the United Nations in Vienna. It's a big building. I wouldn't even make it from one side to the other without cannabis. I mean seriously <laughs> I think right. you know what I'm
0: talking about too right? absolutely absolutely so absolutely. yeah I,
1: it, it's it's made a huge difference in my life um if I didn't have cannabis, I think I would have gone into that kind of spiral with the pain pills and and the you know the lack of mobility and the and the lack of ability to get good rest and sleep and quality time you know with your loved ones and everything it's just it's a spiral it it, it's gloom and doom on every level and it just sort of spirals down it's it's a it's a suction trap that you get caught into with pain and misery and i'm just so glad that i'm able to break out of that with a cannabis product and without cannabis i i I can't even tolerate the level of pain pills that i would need to actually even feel pain-free without the cannabis so uh, there's that as well with cannabis, I can take a really tiny amount of pain medicine, and it works pretty good. I, I get pretty good pain relief and uh, I really up the dose I, We have a lot of cannabis products that we use. yes, we use inside the United Nations. you heard it here um, and and uh, you know we we do the best we can to to function and, 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 and do the stuff that we do i 'm driven to to see this through it 's funny that i 'm even needed. I mean why should I as a veteran as a just a citizen? even need to be here. But um, I I don't know. It's just very strange, the the, the places where we play such a big role. I mean, I'll give you just a strange little example, okay? It may seem like a totally abstract example, but it's easy to say, and I think it's funny. Uh, Back in March, the World Health Organization came and presented an information table at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. That was where they were supposed to have this big vote, but they delayed it for one year to the next meeting, next March. And uh, the World Health Organization had these really cool books, with the whole process and all the proceedings about cannabis in it. And they, they, we took a few each, you know, like we would usually do, but then they were going to throw out the rest. There was literally hundreds of them that, that were left over, and they were going to throw them out because there was no provision in their budget to take them back to Geneva and nowhere to leave them in Vienna. And we grabbed them, and we stowed them away in our you know, NGO uh, lounge, and we hid them away for the year and pulled them out. Yesterday, handed them to member states and handed out 100 in about four minutes. Uh, to member states uh, in this closed session, pretty, (laughs) you know, pretty little tiny thing that may actually help, Sure,
0: know, absolutely. No, 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 absolutely, because the bottom line is information is king, and most people (laughs) need to be educated on what, you know, has been found not only in the United States, but around the world as the benefits to cannabis. Now, you know, you, um, you work with a lot of veterans and a lot of veterans across the country, helping them get access in those states where it's legal to have access. I mean, what have you found some of their greatest complaints to be?
1: Well, we we looked at this um, back when we got the policy in place in 2010. We looked at the kind of the lay of the land at the time and the 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 benefits of, you know the, the to risk ratio. If you want to talk like the you know the medicine people. The benefit to risk ratio that we saw that seemed to be the most dramatic. Um, and, and, the one place where we seemed to see the least amount of options available was, uh, for post-traumatic stress, uh, veterans suffering post-traumatic stress. And we looked at like cancer treatment, a lot of cancers in the, especially in the Navy, you know, these uh, shipyards with a lot of Navy vets that had been exposed to like, uh, asbestos and stuff. We had a lot of traumatic brain injury. We had a lot of pain, neuropathic, horrible pain. You know pantom limb pain all these kinds of but post traumatic stress there 's two drugs that are available from the fDA and they both have a black box suicide warning they carry a suicide warning on post traumatic stress drug and, and and then the other thing about these drugs is that uh, these are you know the same vets that are taking a lot of pain pills and all this stuff that are represent all these you know outrageously high statistics of suicide overdose all this, and cannabis really helps for post traumatic stress on a, on a bunch of levels a bunch of these symptoms of post-traumatic stress seem to be uh, alleviated or helped or leased. And, and certainly treatments that the VA offers are benefited. The treatments actually are more effective when the veterans using cannabis. We, we looked at that and said, that's, that's what we need to do. So we went from where uh, we had New Mexico that had the qualification listed in their state law. And California, of course, didn't have a list. And we went from that, and in just seven years, now we have 30 states plus. Uh, I think it's 31 now that have post-traumatic stress as a qualifying condition as a result of the push that we made. And uh, I'm really, really happy with that result. And it was very organic. We worked in each state. We worked in about 16 states, I'd say total. And each state we worked with local veterans, local legislators, local medical doctors. And when we were done, we sewed all that up and went to the next state and started over. And by doing that, it created a very organic growth. And in some of those states, post-traumatic stress is the number one qualifying condition, that means across the board. The number one number of patients that are using the state program at right now in some states is post-traumatic stress. That's pretty cool.
0: That's really cool. And it's great. You know, it's something a testament to the hard work that you've been doing, you know, keeping the issue alive and, and, you know, upfront and, and making sure that somebody's looking out for our vets, you know? Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, the, the,
1: it's, you know, the Veterans Affairs Hospital System is has got really so much going for it. And it, it has some of the best research programs, it has some of the best medical care in the world. Um, and it's way overshadowed by some of these problems that are endemic and very difficult to solve inside the system. And, uh, you know, we've, I think, done a really good job of right from day one, you know, back in 2007 or 2008, whenever we really started this conversation with the VA to be very respectful and acknowledge that uh-huh. and, and show that we're working on the same side. We're on the same side. You know, the VA and, and us advocates are working for the best outcome for the vets. That's really true. And, and the Veterans Affairs officials that I've worked with really care. So, you know, we, we've actually, um, I, I think we've got a lot to work with. And it's funny, you know, this little tiny thing, this VA marijuana policy, it's the only thing that
0: we've ever gotten on the federal level. You know that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about you, know, you. You've been recently working with two U.S. senators, and you can tell us who they are. Who have been working on the Veterans Medical Marijuana Safe Harbor Act? Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really have too much to say. You know, it, it's funny how we uh, specialize in this stuff. But uh, I, I work with uh, Senator Schatz, certainly in Hawaii. Um, uh, but uh, the uh, the the basically the federal uh, legislation flows. From the, the paradigm that we that we set up, in other words, we ex- tried to explain you know that we, we took the Kona decision out in the west coast it 's a ninth Circuit decision where doctors proactively sued for the ability to recommend cannabis I mean, that's where this whole recommend versus prescription thing is really well explained and we showed by using that case that you actually have a free speech right to a recommendation. The doctor and the patient have a certain amount of free speech that's necessary for that doctor-patient relationship. And it, within that a little bit of room is the the space for this recommendation. So by looking at that, that, that conant decision and, and looking at that language, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's the Ninth Circuit ruling and it was never accepted by the Supreme Court. So it's not law anywhere else in the country but on the West Coast. But the language is all based on the U.S. Constitution and very straightforward. So we use that language to show that doctors at the VA, who are denied free speech as a result of their job, they're denied free speech, but they need a certain amount of free speech to actually conduct their job. And we started trying to dig into that. It's actually been a real conundrum for us to be able to really push that effectively. Uh, but that's where the Veterans Equal Access Act came from. That's where the Veterans Line and the Carers Act came from. And then extended on that and, and building on the fact that you, you again that other part of the VA policy where you're not allowed to use VA in the old folks home, you're not allowed to use the, the, the cannabis in the old folks home, you're not allowed to use cannabis on the campus of the VA hospital. I mean, if you imagine you're in the hospital but you're not allowed to have your medicine because you're in the hospital. I mean, even on its face, that sounds so absurd it, it, it cries out for change. And that's where the Veterans Safe Harbor Act come from, comes from, is uh, you know trying to you know create. But uh, you know from our organization's perspective. What we'd like to see the most from a bill like that isn't necessarily its passage, uh, although we'd love to see it passed. It's kind of a long shot. But what we hope from it is uh, dialogue. And the dialogue is not just about vets. It's about anyone that, because of the federal to state interaction, are being denied services. People that are being kicked off transplant lists, not allowed to live in federal housing, uh, you know, not allowed to have a concealed carry permit uh, because of their uh, use of medical cannabis under doctor's orders We're legal buying cannabis out of the store and paying tax.
0: Right. And what do you think about, you know, I mean, now there's been a huge surge in CBD usage, but now recently, just recently, the, the U.S. Navy uh, put out an edict that they don't want any of their personnel using any hemp-based or any any yeah, any hemp-based CBD products whatsoever, and we know that CBD doesn't include the active ingredient THC, uh, that normally is, you know, responsible for, we're generally given the responsibility for the euphoria, but there's a moratorium on even using CBD. Well,
1: when you talk about it in a broad way like that, my brain goes two different ways. You know, one one way uh, it, it goes into the history mode, and it says, this is really an interesting moment for us, because I was actually there, at least at the tail end of the decision-making process to pull hemp away from cannabis. In other words, we had this marijuana movement, and these hempsters were working with farmers, and they were working with, you know, uh, very very basic conservative issues, with like you said, no THC. Uh, so they broke away from the marijuana movement and became the hemp movement. And. Uh, the hemp movement has stayed totally separate up until CBD, which can be drawn in a medical marijuana crop, in a medical marijuana state, or from a pure hemp crop in Kentucky. And you can still get this CBD from either one. And, and it brings me, my brain also brings me to the World Health Organization because the World Health Organization is make, making, uh, is one of its recommendations is on CBD. And it's a clarifying note that is recommended to be added to the treaty. Talking about CBD and talking about the fact that it, that, like you said, it's not THC, it's not a drug of abuse, and that it shouldn't uh, be worried about or be a subject of any control. They actually have to put it in the treaty to say that it's not in the treaty because of the reason I just stated a minute ago that you can actually have a medical marijuana crop and produce CBD. So, you know, it, it's a gray area where If you produce it from marijuana, it's marijuana. If you produce it from hemp, it's hemp.
0: Wow. Yeah, and molecularly, everyone claims that it's the exact same molecule because it's coming from the same plant. Truly, one flowers, one doesn't. So it's the same molecule, so it shouldn't make a difference. But we somehow have have decided that, you know, if you extract CBD even as an isolate from a marijuana plant, then that is somehow tainted, even though we know that the isolate can be as pure as just 100%. Had zero particulate of THC, and, and the
1: way the World Health Organization dealt with that is they took, you know, albeit an arbitrary number. They took an arbitrary number uh, that was relevant to their work, at least a, a 0.2% dry weight of THC. So even uh, th- even CBD with a tiny amount of THC in it, by the World Health Organization definitions, should still be exempted from control, and and that's pretty cool. So that would allow You know, for plant-based CBD to be produced, even if there's a little bit of THC in it, it's not going to prevent it from being able to be sold as pure CBD. At least if this recommendation is accepted by the by the UN.
0: And you know, I think part of the reason why people are reaching for this is because we also now know that there are probably about 166 other cannabinoids that are of value. So we can't exclude all the other cannabinoids and just think that. One component of the entire plant has medicinal value: CBN, CBG, THCA, THCV, CBDV. All of those other cannabinoids have an impossible medical implication. But, you know, as we continue to go after this one cannabinoid at a time, it makes it really tough for, you know, science to kind of delineate the values. and And I think that's what part of the problem has been. Where do you see... You know, first off, let's let's give out some information just in case somebody's listening right now and they want to get some more information from you. Where should they, how can they get in contact with you or your organization? Give us your website.
1: The easiest thing is uh, Facebook. We update that probably more than anything else. So it be Facebook slash USA period VMCA, as in Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access, USA, uh, dot BMCA. And, uh, yeah, uh, I just want to mention one last little thing. The World Health Organization... You know, on the last subject the world Health organization actually did talk about cbn and cbg i think were the two uh alternative uh cannabinoids and they said the reason why they didn't include them in this note was because at the time of the review there had there wasn't enough research uh, available for them to make any determinations but they impl- implied rather openly that should there be enough information in the future they would revisit that and just add more so it's likely in the future this note will grow and it'll say you know, CBN with a tiny dash of THC or CBD with a tiny dash of uh, THC would all be exempt from control. But what this does is it, you know, anyone that's gotten to the level that I have and, and, and you have and you start getting into federal court system with, uh, you know, uh, cases and you start looking at the, the fight to get medical access at that, from that point of view, is the DEA. The first thing out of their mouth is the treaty. The very first thing they say when they start defending the position of the U.S. federal law is the treaty. So if we can and, and a treaty,
0: and a treaty by which you know only one person in the United States uh by his own committee who was Anslinger who fought for thirty years to get the u n to adopt this yep. stand you know and yep. uh and it's the same this is the same person who actually supported the use of cannabis before the end of prohibition, but changed his mind when he was out of a job because he was such a big prohibitionist um where do you where do you want to see let, 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 let's say where do you see the future of cannabis going in the United States? Well,
1: the, the, <laughs> that's funny. You know, we're at thirty four.
0: We're at thirty four states right now, in the District of Columbia, that has some form of marijuana law. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things
1: I could say, but uh, the one thing I think that kind of gives your listeners some little tidbit that I, I only, you know, was there to. Is to be able to witness firsthand for them, uh, it was this moment where marijuana was legalized in the United States. Now, this, you got a picture now. The United States, as you described, with our champion who created the world marijuana prohibition, uh, this, uh, anse- Commissioner Anslinger. Anslinger, yep. West Commission. He was not only the federal marijuana commissioner, but he was also our ambassador to the United Nations in 1961. But anyway, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, the, the, uh, international treaty that we signed into um oh gosh no i, I totally forgot what i was going to say in that term <laughs> no,
0: no that's okay it's okay now. well yeah, i mean i think we, we were talking asked the question of where do you think the future of marijuana goes in the united states
1: oh yeah yeah so uh, uh yeah so yeah i was talking about the story when i was there at the moment where marijuana was legalized in the united states and I got lost in the Anslinger, but it, it, the reason I went down Anslinger Road is because the United States has been not only the champion, but as you said, they helped create these bloody treaties. And although we don't like treaties in the United States, people in the United States uh, you know, generally uh, dismiss them. The treaty is actually part of our U.S. federal law. And when we legalized marijuana at the state level in Washington State and Colorado, the rest of the world looked at us and just was in shock, really. Uh, This is a country that's been enforcing prohibition for the last 50 years, just allowed legalization inside the USA. It was a a really crazy moment. And our representative to the United Nations, this guy named uh, Brownfield, uh, he went and explained ourselves to them at the U.N. And he said that the treaty had a certain amount of flexibility to it, that we should look at these um, legalization attempts in, in different places, Uruguay, United States. Uh, as the experiment that we can all learn from under the flexibility in the treaty. And that was such a novel new idea that those in the know, you know that remember it call it the Brownfield Flexibility Doctrine. <laughs> no, I- <laughs> it never did before. <laughs> you just created this flexibility in the treaty. But this is the kind of new ground we're on. The minute you took the United States out of the picture of stopping progress progress has emerged. Now, Canada is implementing legalization. You can buy legal cannabis just like you can in California in the entire country of Canada. So this is really getting serious. And it's yet to be seen how this is going to play out in the UN, you know, because we did sign these agreements and because the U.S. still does have such a cozy agree- uh, relation with Russia, for example, who actually is frothing at the mouth, uh, hating marijuana and wanting to shut all this down. It's really fascinating stuff. So, yeah, I, I, I see everything going on in the United States, and I'm in just in awe, frankly. Uh, I I love the fact that you can get such good medicinal access in states where it's available. I don't like where it's going, you know, that a lot of uh, legislators and those who really never believed in medical marijuana in the first place are now seeing medical marijuana as a nuisance when they're regulating non-medical use. And, you know, especially in like a place like Washington State, uh, the patient has been seen you know, as a nuisance and, and a, a tax drain, and uh, that shouldn't be. The program, if anything, should be dedicated to helping poor people get access to cannabis uh, medicine, to helping uh, people that were disenfranchised and, and, and hurt by the drug war before to actually participate in, the, in this new paradigm uh, and be able to have a wrong that they could actually overcome to get into the industry. That's what we should, we should be dedicating the funds for this industry into. And, yes, medicine for vets, sure, why not?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I can't tell you thank you. I can't say thank you enough, Mike, for participating today, and we'd love to have you back. Anytime. Absolutely. Now, when do you travel back into the states?
1: I'm actually going from here over to Geneva, and that's where we've been bouncing back and forth. You know, I, I had this such a big, you know, I guess it would be a civics lesson, but the UN is separate from the World Health Organization, and a little tidbit, fun fact. The World Health Organization has a couple more members than the UN does. So it's really fascinating working between Geneva and Vienna. And I'll be in Geneva for a couple of days for some World Intellectual Property Organization meeting, WIPO. Uh, we're looking at uh, cannabis uh, varieties, the, the genetics, and, and protecting the, the uh, ability to be able to grow this as a small plant, you know, small uh, farmer, craft farmer, indigenous farmer. Uh, and be able to have a path to market internationally is kind of the thing we're getting into. So over in Geneva, we've been going to those meetings now. And it's amazing how much crossover there is uh, right in between these two worlds seems to be the World Health Organization with, you know, like its traditional use department, traditional medicine, traditional use department, et cetera.
0: Okay. All right, my friend. Well, I can't say thank you enough. I got a amount of time, but I'm going to let all our listeners in. Give them one more time. Give a shout out to your website. One more time, please, sir.
1: Yeah, just go to Facebook and uh, at the Facebook website slash usa.bmca as in Veterans for Medical Cannabis Access. And from there, you can drop us a, a message. Uh, you can also go on our website, just Google us and uh, send a message to us from there. Uh, yeah, if absolutely. anybody wants to reach us. Thanks so much again.
0: No, thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for tuning in. Make sure that if there's something that you want to hear and more you want to hear about, make to drop us a note. You know, send us a like. Let us know that uh, we're on the right track and we'll continue providing you with information that'll help you make good decisions in your life. Thanks a lot for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Blunt.